Will you please turn with me for our New Testament reading to Matthew 5? Read verses 1 through 12, the Beatitudes. Then we'll turn to our sermon text in Zephaniah chapter 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Let's turn now to Zephaniah, chapter 2. You do not have to turn very far. So we are at, uh, forth, forth from the end of the Old Testament. All right, Zephaniah, chapter 2. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the sea coast, you nation of the Carathites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. 
The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Amen. You may be seated. So a couple of months ago when we were in the book of Micah, we came across that very famous verse, uh, one of the most famous verses in the Minor Prophets, uh, Micah 6, 8, where he says, He's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy or steadfast love and to walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. That humility before God, uh, of course, is not a theme unique to Micah. Um, Runs all the way through the Minor Prophets. really runs through the whole Bible. And it is a central, defining, essential mark of somebody who has a right, right relationship with God. Back then I mentioned... Uh, that letter from the church father, Augustine, where he said, uh, if you ask me what true true Christianity is marked by, he said it's basically three things. First, humility. Second, humility. And third, humility. And here in Zephaniah, that same bell is ringing again. Humility, humility. Humility before our God. And not only is the prophet here calling God's people, the faithful ones who are still listening to him, still paying attention to the prophetic word, he's not only calling them to humility, but he's also going to show them what God is going to do to the proud. What God is going to do, to, especially to the arrogant nations surrounding them. On every side. This is what happens, Zephaniah is going to say, when people are not humble. 
And so all the more, the call for Judah is humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves and then look around and see how he's going to lift you up. In spite of the exile, in spite of that coming day of the Lord judgment that we talked about last time, I want to listen here not just for what God is going to do to the proud to bring them down, but also what God is going to do for the humble to bring them up. Now, our outline today is going to be a little different from usual. First, we'll cover the first three verses, that opening call to humility. Then after that, what I want to show you is how there's a, a series of four sections about four different groups of people uh, covering, as the commentators like to say, the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west, or actually west, east, south, and north in that order. And we'll look at each one as we get there. Um, But first of all, that call to humility, verses 1 through 3, it says, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. And chapter 1, you remember from last time, was all about how the day of the Lord is coming, how it is near and hastening fast. But there's still this window of opportunity. The prophet is still speaking. That window is, is closing, but it, but it is still open for those who will listen. Um, think about Hebrews chapter 3, late, much later in the New Testament. Hebrews 3 uh, looks back on Psalm 95, is what he's commenting on, where the author of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Uh, That's what Psalm 95 says, and Hebrews is quoting it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And Hebrews reminds us there, we need to exhort each other every day. He says, as long as it is called today. As long as it is called today, because today won't be today forever, right? It's going to come to an end. So many people are putting off spiritual things. Putting off repentance, putting off trusting in Christ, thinking that they have all the time in the world to deal with that later. In fact, this is one of the devil's great strategies for distracting people from the things of God. It's, it's spiritual procrastination. Oh, I can just think about that later. But the Bible is insistent. Zephaniah here is calling Judah now. Let's do this now, before the day of judgment comes. Don't put it off. Time is now fleeting. The moments are passing, passing from you and from me. Shadows are gathering and deathbeds are coming, coming for you and for me. Like the hymn says, it's true. Now is the time to hear the voice of God. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to any of us. And so with the time that we have, as long as that window of opportunity is open, what are we supposed to do? How are God's people supposed to respond to this prophet's message of warning? Verse 3 says, Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Reminds me of when Isaiah tells us, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It's the hope for those who, who turn and seek the Lord. Um, now, there's something interesting here. You look back at Israel's past history, long past. Long before this, the Lord had actually anticipated that Israel was going to get into terrible trouble through their sin, that they were going to come under covenant judgment, and that he was going to provide for them this very solution, this way out to seek him, and by seeking him to find restoration in life instead of destruction and death. I want you to think back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. One day, Moses says in that chapter, the Lord is going to scatter you among the peoples because you're not going to be loyal to him. But when that happens, verse 29 says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This is the ancient promise. The same ancient promise that Jeremiah appeals to in that famous chapter, Jeremiah 29, in his letter to the exiles in Babylon. Um, not very many years after Zephaniah's ministry, and he tells the exiles, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. It's deliberately using that language from that ancient promise in Deuteronomy. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations, from all the nations. See, Zephaniah is not making things up here off the top of his head. He's not introducing uh, new rules as he goes along or new ideas, new commandments like, like Calvin Ball, if you know what that is, where now there's something different that is real. He's, no, he's just appealing to the ancient promise and the ancient command of God from that earlier time in Israel's history. And he's saying, now that time has come. Now you are in that awful predicament that Moses told you would happen. And so now... It's the time that you need to lay hold in faith of the promise that the Lord gave you through Moses back then. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. You might ask, I hope you do, what exactly does that mean, though? What does it look like to seek the Lord? You can say that, but what, what does it actually involve? And I think there are a few answers to that. Um, the most basic way that we seek the Lord is we seek him in his word. It's where he's revealed himself. It's where he's spoken to us. It's the most basic way to seek him. Seeking the Lord means putting, in our, putting ourselves in a position to hear the word of God and to understand it better. Um, and... For us, that means reading it regularly. That's the, uh, something very simple. Reading it regularly. It means listening to solid preaching and teaching. 
It means making the worship of God central in our lives, not just something that's kind of incidental that we do sometimes if we feel like it, but it means making it central to our lives because that's where we come to seek the Lord. It's where we come to behold His glory and experience His presence together and have Him feed us with His Word and with the sacraments as well, which show us, again, the same things that He's telling us in the Scriptures. See, for the people in Zephaniah's day, to seek the Lord meant particularly to listen to the prophets, really to believe what they said, to submit their hearts to the the prophetic word, not to turn a deaf ear to it, not just to dismiss the prophets like so many people in Judah were doing in those days. There's something else here too, though. This seeking the Lord is not just um, something passive where we, where we try to get this input into our souls through God's word. That's, that's an important part of it. Passive is not a bad thing. We need to be rece- passively receiving God's word, have him speaking to us, pouring his word, his grace into our souls through the means of grace. Zephaniah goes on, though. What does it look like to seek the Lord? It means to do his just command. Seeking the Lord involves obedience as well. Seek righteousness, Zephaniah says. See, we seek the Lord by seeking to grow. By his strength, of course, not our own strength, but we're, still, we're seeking to grow in living out a life that's consistent with who he is, what he's like. Jesus says something very similar in his own ministry when he tells his disciples to seek first what? You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus didn't come saying, I've come to give you the forgiveness of sins, and then you don't have to worry about how you live now because you're forgiven. No, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm not talking here about works righteousness. Of course, the righteousness according to the law, as Paul will call it in Romans and Galatians, somehow um, kind of as though this uh, righteousness somehow competes with faith as these two alternative ways of uh, getting to God or knowing God or something like that. No, it's not like that at all. What I'm talking about is the true gospel obedience that follows out of true faith. Works righteousness, that attempt to to please God, to, to prove our worthiness through our moral effort, through doing better and trying harder. Well, that's actually not humble at all. It's the opposite. That's fundamentally arrogant. It's fundamentally prideful just to try to do a, try to do a better job of being a Christian and thinking that that's what we need to do. No, that's the opposite of humility. Instead, this righteousness goes hand in hand with humility. They go together. Seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. This is coming to God with that attitude, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. It's the attitude that says, this I know that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. And there's nothing that I can offer to God that he would possibly ever need from me. It's saying my very best is unworthy. My very strongest efforts are so full of sin and even my good works are like filthy rags next to his holiness. But... 
know this. I know that I belong to him. I know that I am his servant, that he is my God and my master. Therefore, his wish is my command. See, it's that humble obedience, that righteous humility, that humble righteousness. That's the kind of humility that characterizes the true people of God. These people that God is saying he's going to preserve, he's going to hide, he's going to protect when his great day of judgment comes. So chapter 1 was a message of universal judgment, right? Remember, everything swept away from the face of the earth. Chapter 2 is continuing the revelation by qualifying that blanket statement, saying, in that universal judgment and through that judgment, there is still hope, though. There is hope for the humble. And in fact, part of the hope for God's true people is in the very fact that the world is going to be judged. Okay, Remember this, that the judgment on the nations is part of God's salvation of his people. We've talked about this before, and that's why the rest of the chapter, chapter 2 here, turns now to these nations surrounding Judah, not Judah itself, but the nations surrounding Judah, and how the day of the Lord is going to impact them, and what that is going to mean for good for the humble remnant in Judah. Most of Judah, of course, is going to come under the same judgment as the nations. Um, Most of Judah is going to experience the day of the Lord as bad news, but there's this humble remnant who's going to experience his good news The judgment on the nations is part of that good news for them. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that Zephaniah covers the four points of the compass here. West, east, south, and north. So let's start then with the Philistines. The Philistines lived to the west of Israel uh, along the Mediterranean Sea coast. And um, other sermon series we've had the chance to talk before about those five classic Philistine cities that are always popping up in Bible history. Whenever you hear these five city names, you know it's... And often they're mentioned together as a group. You know that God's talking about the Philistines. Uh, The first one is is Gath, and that's where Goliath was from. That one does not appear in this chapter, but the other four do. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. Okay? Okay. it's interesting, there's a play on words going on here that you, that you don't see in the English. Um, Gaza being deserted and Ekron being uprooted. Um, those pairs of words have matching sounds in Hebrew. So it's like Gaza is going to be gazooved and Ekron is going to be ekered. Um, uh, it's kind of the way it would sound to um, a Hebrew listener of, of this poetry. Um, but of course, it, what it means is that... Um, uh, that Gaza will be deserted, Ekron uprooted, Ashkelon's going to be a desolation, Ashdod's people will be driven out at noon. Um, and <clears throat> uh, so what you're seeing here is that it's not just Judah that's going to go into exile. The land of the Philistines is also going to be emptied out until no inhabitant is left, verse 5 says. And so in verse 6, you get this image of a totally deserted landscape. So where there used to be these cities and villages full of people, 
Now it's all just pasture land. Now it's a place for shepherds to go and let, let their flocks roam around and eat the grass that's been growing up because nobody's cutting the grass. Um, I, I, they didn't cut the grass back then. But anyway, verse 7 goes a step further uh, where Zephaniah says, listen, Judah is um, going into exile and the Philistines are going into exile. But guess who's going to get to live now in that deserted Philistine territory? It's going to be the remnant of the house of Judah. The remnant of the house of Judah. Who's the remnant? Well, the remnant is the humble who have listened to the prophet. These people who have sought the Lord, who have sought righteousness, who have sought humility. They are the ones who are going to reap the benefit of what God is about to do. When the Philistine territory gets emptied out, it's going to be emptied out for them. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening. No Israelite would want to go lie down in a house of Ashkelon as long as Philistines were living there. But if the Philistines are gone, now they get to move in and take their place. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them, of the remnant, and restore their fortunes. Again, that's another phrase from Deuteronomy about what God is going to do when Israel comes under covenant curse, but then repents that restore their fortunes. Again, it's that ancient promise that Zephaniah is recalling. Um, As an aside, I've I've mentioned Deuteronomy a couple of times now, and it's significant um, because of the historical context here of when Zephaniah was living. Remember how Zephaniah is ministering during the reign of King Josiah. And it was under King Josiah that the book of the law was discovered in the temple, rediscovered after long neglect. Um, many Bible scholars believe that the, that the book, that when uh, St. Kings talks about the book of the law, that it's referring particularly to the book of Deuteronomy was what they found there. <laughs> All the dust needed to be shaken off of it. That it was that book particularly or at least especially, that Josiah began to read and follow and implement in Judah during his great reformation that he led. And so it's very significant when prophets like Deuteron- like sorry, like Zephaniah use this language that echoes that particular book of the Bible because it, it's like he's reinforcing and he's expounding on and he's, he's doing application from that particular Old Testament book to the present situation of God's people. It's, it's part of that, more, that broader movement that Josiah, along with the true prophets of his day, were leading to call Israel back to the scriptures, to reformation according to the word of God, that they now had in this renewed way in their hands and on their minds and hearts. What an example for us of how reformation always happens among the people of God and how we still need it to happen in our own day. Okay, now in verse 8. Uh, we move then from the west over by the Mediterranean Sea. Now we're moving over to the east, <clears throat> the other side of the Jordan River. Um, the opposite, we may think of as the Transjordan. Um, and that was where you had the territory of Moab and Ammon. Moab and Ammon. And um, it's natural for these two um, rivals of Israel 
to go together in one section. Um, because if you remember back to Genesis 19, Moab and Ammon were the two sons of Abraham's nephew, Lot. They were, and um, that historical context also explains why uh, the Lord draws a comparison between what's going to happen to Moab and Ammon and what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? Think about that historical context of those few chapters of Genesis. It was Lot who was living in Sodom and who was rescued from it before God destroyed it. And it was very shortly after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that Moab and Ammon were born in that very disturbing episode involving Lot and his daughters. Now, notice how um, Zephaniah particularly points out the arrogance, the arrogance of these two nations. They have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Okay, so the, the basic virtue this chapter is calling Judah to is humility. The basic problem with these surrounding nations is pride. It's pride. God is going to humble them because they have not humbled themselves. But then he's going to take the humble of Judah and he's going to put them in the place of these arrogant nations. He's going to lift them up. O. Palmer Robertson points out another reason that that historical background with Lot is important here, thinking about Israel, or the people of Judah, the humble in Judah, being able to live in these places that are being vacated by the Moabites and Ammonites. Remember in Genesis 13, when Abram and Lot have too many animals to be able to live in the same area anymore. And so Abram says, uh, Lot, you go one way and I'll go the other. You, you pick. And so Lot looks east. And he sees that whole valley around Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, oh, that's where I want to go. The land looks great over there. And so Lot goes to the east. So Abram has to stick to the west. But immediately after that, do you remember what the Lord tells Abram? Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. See, now the, the faithful and humble among the descendants of Abraham are going to see that promise come true for them as God acts to humble Ammon and Moab. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. And to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. In our Summer in the Psalms evening series, I mentioned several times last couple months that a big part of prayer, as we, especially as we see it in the Psalms, is appealing to God's unchanging character in our present circumstances. And it really boils down to asking God, Lord, be who you are towards me right here and right now. Be who you are towards me 
Well, this message of judgment on Ammon and Moab is kind of the flip side of that same coin. God is simply going to be who he is towards Moab and Ammon. The awesome God will be awesome against them. I love the swipe against the false gods here, against the idols. God is going to famish them. He's going to famish them. All those idols are going to be powerless to provide for themselves as God, of course, is going to be removing all of their worshipers. I'm going to take your worshipers away. There's going to be nobody left to offer you sacrifices anymore. Those sacrifices that you supposedly crave and depend on, God is going to famish those idols. He's going to starve them out. Okay, well, if you got one of the outlines, um, you might notice that I left a smaller space for uh, Cush down to the south. Um, and I did that because the section on Cush is only one verse, just two lines here. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Um, now, the Cushites lived down in uh, Africa, south of Egypt, uh, like where modern Sudan is. Um, sometimes they're called Ethiopians in the Bible. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time here because there's not a lot of time in the text, but just suffice it to say, uh, Cush kind of rounds out the compass points here. It represents the south. It shows that God's judgment also, it also shows that God's judgment is going to reach far beyond Judah and uh, far beyond even its immediate neighbors because Cush was really far away. But even though it was really far away, it was, it was not beyond the reach of the sovereignty of God. Okay. Last, but definitely not least, comes Assyria, really the most powerful nation in this list. And once again, what's the main problem? The main problem that Zephaniah says is going to result in Assyria's downfall? It is their pride. It's the same thing. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. God is going to humble this city that has been so arrogant. And by doing so, again, he's going to be delivering and protecting those in Judah who have humbled themselves before. There are really two paths that the Bible presents to us as possible options for the way we're going to experience the day of the Lord when it comes. Uh, Something else Robertson points out. I think it's a really crucial point, this chapter. Both paths end up looking, in a sense, the same, outwardly at least. It's the image of us on our knees, bowing before the holiness and majesty and righteousness of God. See, there are two very very different ways of getting into that posture of humility. One of them is to humble yourself now in humility before the word of God. But the other, much less desirable, is to be humbled, humiliated, in fact, when God does it for you in the end, even though you were so arrogant and rebellious now. See, Philippians 2 even tells us 
every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the inevitable end for every creature, every human being. But you see, not everyone will bow on that day in the same way, with the same outcome, or with the same experience in their hearts, and the same result afterwards. See, beloved, we must humble ourselves now. Seek righteousness, seek humility, seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near now. And in calling us to that, let's not forget that the Lord is simply calling us to have the same attitude that that Christ had, who humbled himself. Um, Not because he was a sinner who needed to repent. No, actually, if you think about it, he he humbled himself because we were sinners who needed to repent. He humbled himself, in fact, all the way to the point of death on the cross for us as he was suffering and dying there, the penalty that we deserved so that our sins could be forgiven and so we could have that gift of life that he had earned for us. And what I want you to want to, want to ask you when you think about that glory of the gospel and that magnitude and depth of the sacrifice of Christ and the humiliation of Christ that he underwent on your behalf, you have to ask yourself, how could anybody who has been rescued from so much and given so much by God, have the slightest shred of arrogance or self-centeredness or pride or smugness or ungraciousness left in our hearts. And yet we so constantly struggle with exactly those things. That is why God has given us the prophet Zephaniah. That is why the gospel is always calling us back that heartbeat of the Christian life in union with our humble Savior, which is humility. 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 So let's pray. Father in our God, we confess to you our pride and our arrogance, which are so foolish that it makes no sense And yet, you see it in our hearts. We cannot hide it from you. We ask you would cleanse it away. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves by your grace beneath your mighty hand so that in due time, you may exalt us. In Jesus' name, amen.